Good day, everyone. Um, my name's Graham Phillips. You might know me from ABC Science Unit, from programs like Catalyst. Thank you very much. Do some of you remember Quantum before that? No, no, I'm giving away my age now. I might shut up, I think. Um, look, um, I'm going to be the MC for tonight. And first question I want to ask you guys is, if you could go to Mars, and they said it was a six-month trip, and you'd be back, who'd go? It's a quick show of hands. Who'd go for that? Yeah, a lot of people. I guess we're not that surprising. What have I said? Okay, you can go to Mars, but it's going to be a four-year journey. And most of that time, you're going to be getting there and getting back in a small tin can, to quote David Bowie. Who'd be up for that? Still quite a few hands. That's good. All right, final choice now. You've won a ticket to go to Mars. Downside is it's a one-way journey. That's it. Say goodbye to everyone. You're never coming home. You're going to be pioneers. Build a civilization on Mars. Who'd be up for that? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that always amazes me. How many people would be up for that? Anyway, there's going to be a lot of chat about that tonight. We're going to basically divide the talk into three parts. So first part will be, you know, is there life on Mars at the moment? Simple life. Or could there have been in the past? The habitability of Mars. Second section will be on colonising Mars. Um, you know, will we send astronauts? Well, we will. How easy will that be? Uh, and then in section three, we're going to go a bit sci-fi and try to look further into the future. Will we colonise the galaxy, ultimately? Will we meet the galactic cousins out there at some stage? Anyway, lots of good talking tonight. So we've got um, four experts, real experts here, to talk about this stuff. Could you please welcome to the stage? Okay, so I'll introduce them in this order. Paul Davies, number one. Our Professor Paul Davies AM is Regents Professor of Physics at Arizona State University and Director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. He's also on the advisory board of the Big Questions Institute. And the asteroid 1992 OG was renamed 6870. Paul Davies, in recognition of his work. Um, next, we have Dr. Abigail Olgood. She is a specialist in the oldest records of life on Earth. She designed an instrument called Pixel that will help search for signs of ancient life on Mars. She is also a principal science investigator on NASA's 2020 Mars rover mission and the first female principal investigator ever on a Mars mission. Well done. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Mitch Schulte, program scientist with the Mars Exploration Program, and he oversees NASA's Mars 2020 rover mission. He has a PhD in Earth and Planetary Sciences, and he's on the advisory board for the Big Questions Institute. Mitch. And finally, we have Professor Martin Van Cranendonk, the director of the Australian Centre for Astrobiology and the director, uh, deputy director of the Big Questions Institute. His research uncovers links between the habitats of early organic life on Earth and ancient habitats that could have harboured life on Mars. Right. 
Now, before we start chatting, we've got a little video to show you here. NASA put the uh, Curiosity rover on Mars back in 2012. Another rover that's going to look pretty similar, we'll have different instruments on it, will be landing on Mars in 2020. So there's an animation here that will give you a feel for what that will be like, landing that craft. How NASA managed to get all that happening without a hiccup, I'm still amazed by that. But let's kick it off. So we know that life began on Earth, you know, billions of years ago. Could Mars have been habitable back at that time? Let's kick it off with you, Martin. Could Mars also have been, had the conditions for life? Well, it's funny. When I first started to get involved with Mars, not personally, scientifically, um, I wasn't that excited by it. I mean, it's the planet of dust. It's this red planet with these huge dust storms everywhere. Looks dry, not very interesting. But poking out beneath those layers of dust are a wide variety of different rocks that show us that Mars had a period very, very long ago, three and a half billion years ago, when there was flowing water on the surface that deposited minerals and lakes, made flowing river channels, many of the features that we recognize on Earth. And you know, the, the mantra for exploration for life in the solar system is to follow the water. So there was this enormous excitement about the possibility of life on Mars because it has the geological features we can recognize on Earth and evidence of water 
which supports all of life on Earth today. So all of a sudden, there's this real excitement about it. So, so Mitch, so if we've got a planet that's in many ways pretty similar to Earth, really, and it also had water, isn't there a very good chance that life could have got going there as well? Sure, and that's why NASA's very interested in studying Mars so uh, industriously these days. What do you think, Paul? Was I, di like I disagree totally with everything that's been said so far. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. <laughs> All right, fists even, out, let's even go. With you, yeah. Even with you, because you started off by saying we know that life started on Earth. We don't. We don't know it started on Earth. It might have just come to Earth. It, it, life certainly established itself on Earth by about three and a half billion years ago. And if Martin's recent trip to Greenland uh, turns out uh, uh, the evidence correct, maybe 3.8 billion years ago. We don't know that it started on Earth. It could have come here from Mars, for example. It might have started on Mars and come here in rocks blasted off Mars uh, by impacts. But in terms of how likely is it, if you've got an Earth-like planet with some water, how likely is it that life is going to emerge? We haven't a clue because nobody knows the process that turned non-life into life. Uh, it wasn't just one amazing chemical reaction, it would have been a whole long sequence. We don't know how to quantify that. Now, I hope, because I love the idea of the universe teeming with life, I hope that probability is really quite reasonable, quite close to one, but it's very easy to imagine a scenario where that probability of a particular dream run of chemical reactions is so low that we would be the only planet with life in the entire universe, observable universe. So, and it could be depressing. anywhere in between. So, we, uh, so I don't want to be a killjoy. We must be optimists <laughs> tonight and uh, hope and expect that there's life out there. Uh, but we do have to be aware that if we find life on Mars, it may be boring old Earth life that got there from here or vice versa. So, so basically, you know, there's like an impact of a rock from space that can knock a bit of Earth onto Mars and can knock a bit of Mars onto Earth. Right, right. And people often say to me, well, how do you know that? Well, our university has uh, about half a dozen Mars uh, meteorites, and um, I think we're all familiar with them. Uh, these, these are Mars rocks that have come here because they've been blasted off Mars uh, by these uh, impacts with comets and by comets and asteroids. And ensconced inside a rock, particularly one this sort of size, uh, it's not so bad uh, traveling through space. Uh, but microbes would be protected from the harsh environment of space and would almost certainly not be dead on arrival. Uh, some of them would make, make the journey no problem at all. So I think once you get life on one of those two planets, you'll get it on both. Um, now, that doesn't diminish the excitement or the importance of going to Mars to see if there was life in the past or is life now. What we really want, though, is a second genesis. We want two samples of life, because if you've got two out of two in the solar system, then surely the universe is teeming with it. So that's the big question that interests me. And, and we could be all Martians, ultimately. We would, we're saying. all yeah. descendants of Martians, absolutely. I think there's a, a real possibility there. It's not an overwhelming case, but there's certainly a, a possibility. Happy, you, you, uh, you think there's probably life on Mars, or there must be a chance of life, I guess, since you're devoting your career to yes. designing instruments that are looking for habitability? Maybe I'm just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, well, we don't have any evidence to the contrary, right, that there isn't life. And uh, there's, as Martin was saying, a lot of evidence that the conditions early on in Mars's history were much like they were on Earth at the same time, where we have evidence in the fossil record here that life had, took, uh, had taken hold and we know how to, uh, to find those sorts of clues to ancient life. And we can take those uh, tools and approaches and, and use them on Mars. And uh, I'd say that this once before was done, the Viking mission, right? 
we went there, but it was a very different approach to what we're doing now. It was more of a, a lucky dip approach. The, uh, the, the, the lander had a, a, a scoop that took in a, a sample of soil. So the Viking just, mission, 1970s, wasn't it, sometime? Yeah, 1970s. Yeah. And the uh, main objective was to search for evidence of organic material, so the, the building blocks of life, and uh, put out a scoop and put it into a, a, an instrument on board, and it came up with a negative answer. And that um, basically made everyone very sad and shut down the Mars program for quite a long time. And uh, we had to get clever about it. Um, because it, it was not really significant that you would just take one sample from one random place on Mars and you couldn't draw a conclusion about the whole planet, and not a negative conclusion anyway. So now we're narrowing the search very much with uh, the, the landers, rovers and orbiters that have been uh, to Mars. Uh, how many now, Mitch? <laughs> we have, uh, we've sent four rovers and half a dozen, a dozen orbiters. And so, we have yeah. just littered this planet with, uh, with our instruments, literally, and uh, our observations there are now, uh, there's no other planet in the solar system other than Earth that is more studied than, than Mars. And we are finally at a stage in, his, in human history where we can go ahead and credibly address a question like this, is there life beyond Earth? We have the tools and the knowledge and the understanding to really take what we've done on Earth and do it on Mars. It's not going to be just wild exploration and guessing in the dark and hoping for the best. We really have a good chance at finding an answer. So Mitch, what, how will Mars 2020 rover help us find out if it's not looking for life, right? It's looking for habitability conditions. Is, is that right? There's no direct test for life or will there be a direct test for uh, life? Well, there's no direct test for life that's currently active on the surface of Mars. Um, conditions on Mars right now are pretty tough for something to be alive there. Uh, so what we're looking for with Mars 2020 mission is evidence in the rock record especially the ancient rock record on Mars, that life may have left behind signatures in those rocks uh, that are uh, at least suggestive that they were deposited by um, or in the presence of life. And so the traditional idea for how life got going on Earth, if it didn't come from space, is that it started deep down in the ocean in these sort of hydrothermal vents down there and then sort of moved up to the surface. I believe Martin uh, has a different take on that. Well, yeah, that's, that's been a really exciting discovery that's really ruled our thinking about the origin of life, also from the 1970s when the first submersibles went down into the very deep oceans and found these billowing plumes of mineralized water coming out of the floor of the ocean. And they were surrounded by really thriving communities without any light anywhere at all. And that was really the discovery that there was an enormous biosphere on Earth that just could live off chemical energy. And that totally transformed the way we thought about life on Earth, from green plants and elephants and people, everything on the surface. Oh my goodness, there's this enormous biosphere that can just live on chemistry. That certainly made the idea of exploring for life elsewhere in the solar system very attractive. But there's a big problem with this model. And there are a number of research groups now who are looking at alternative ways to think about where life originated on Earth. And this is fundamentally important for studying where to search for life on Mars, because our, as Paul said, our one example is on Earth. But the amazing thing is that, yes, life needs water to survive. All life on Earth needs water, but to get the building blocks of life, the simple organic complexes, 
that make the very big molecules like RNA and DNA before you even get life, to get those to stick together, you've got to kick out a water molecule. So all the processes that make the carbon and organic building blocks of life possible have to be done without water or where there's the capacity to have wetting drying cycles. And the other big problem is that the oceans are enormously large, homogenous reservoirs of chemical energy. But it's very hard to concentrate many of the elements that are really important that become part of these building blocks. And so the discovery that we've made in three and a half billion year old rocks on Earth is some of the oldest evidence of life was living in hot springs on land. Now, hot springs on land are very exciting because they commonly occur in fields of up to 100 pools, and they have all different chemistries, so the chemical mixing potential and the complexity is really high. But the best thing of all is that in these hot spring pools, they have the capacity for wetting and drying. If you think of Old Faithful going off, you know, it goes off every hour, there's a surge of water, it gets wet, but then as it subsides, it dries again. And there have been experiments that show that that wetting and drying actually makes those simple organic molecules that you can find in meteorites, you can find all through the universe, it makes them bigger, makes them stickier, makes them more complex. It's the start of that process that we still don't yet know the full line of, but it's the start. So we're developing this new paradigm, which Charles Darwin already thought about 145 years ago in a letter that he wrote to Charles Hooker, oh, if, and what a big if, life started in some warm little pond. This guy was a total genius. We're now following that up with more scientific evidence to suggest that life may have started on land. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's exciting for Mars because Mars doesn't look like it ever had an ocean, but we know it had volcanoes, and we know it had water, which are the ingredients for hot springs. Okay, well, let me just bring Mitch in there. I mean, did Mars have an ocean? Do we have evidence that Mars had an ocean? We have some evidence that Mars may have had some standing bodies of water, whether you want to call them an ocean or not, uh, is up, still up for debate. Uh, but there were substantial bodies of standing water on the surface of Mars in the past. And, and is Mars 2020 rover going to do further investigations of, of those ideas? Can you, can you run us through the Mars 2020 rover a little, briefly? Uh, sure. So um, as you can see from the uh, image that we've projected there, uh, it looks very similar to Curiosity. And so we are rebuilding the, uh, the chassis that we used for Curiosity. We're going to land it on Mars the same way that you saw in the video at the beginning. Um, but it's going to have all new instruments, including Abby's. Um, and so. Again, what we're focusing on this time for this mission uh, is looking for signs of life uh, on the surface of Mars, past ancient life that might have existed in really ancient terrains uh, on the surface of Mars. Uh, so we have a number of instruments, uh, and I'll let Abby talk about hers in particular. Um, but these instruments are all designed to look uh, at the scale that we think life existed on Mars, which is the micro scale. Most life on Earth, uh, despite all the great elephants and so forth that Martin talked about earlier, most of the biomass on Earth is microbial. It's stuff that you can't see with the naked eye. And so we really need to get down to that level on the surface of Mars when we're looking for uh, evidence of life in Mars's past. So all of these instruments are sort of designed to go from large-scale kinds of structures all the way down to the micro scale. I got a, a guy I filmed with a few weeks ago is um, 
hoping he'll find stromatolites on Mars, fossilised stromatolites. He's hoping to convince your crowd, I think, to go and look for them with a the Mars 2020 <laughs> rover. I'll pass his number on to you. Great, thank you. Um, just uh, quickly, Abby, can you tell us briefly what your instrument does that you've designed? Okay, so uh, Pixel is one of the two instruments on the end of the rover arm. You see, uh, I think you can see the it's drill. It's the really, really big one at the end. I'll there, stop so. it. <laughs> Not that big. Um, it's, uh, it's an X-ray fluorescence instrument, which means it uses X-rays, uh, in this case a very tiny X-ray beam about the width of a human hair, to, uh, to point at the rock or the soil, and uh, the, it induces X-ray fluorescence, which we detect and uh, the energy of that X-ray fluorescence tells us which elements, chemical elements, are present in the rock, and uh, the abundance or the amount of um, those photons coming off tells us the abundance of those different elements. So what we end up being able to do is study the chemistry of the rocks at very, very fine sub-millimetre scales, and we move that tiny beam around and take point, 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 and we build up postage stamp-sized maps of the chemistry of the rocks, and we can correlate that with the very fine-scale textures that you see. And that's a, a first. I mean, in previous missions, there have been instruments that have detected elemental chemistry, but at sort of bigger scales. And uh, it's been kind of tantalizing for geologists and scientists working on those missions to see all these textures and tiny structures in the rocks. If you go to your driveway and pick up a rock, you'll, in the most, almost every circumstance, see small-scale features, like millimetre and smaller, depending on your eyesight, of course. But uh, we want to know what the chemistry looks like in relation to those in order to understand questions about where and when the water uh, interacted with the rock, where and when any biological activity might have interacted with the rock, and so on. Okay, let's, let's move on to uh, the next topic. Yeah, round of applause, please. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Martian, but Matt Damon seemed to do okay on Mars. It doesn't seem that hard to live there, really, in the scheme of things. <laughs> Um, I suspect NASA has a different idea on that. Um, and we've got a little clip, actually, before we start that section that NASA's put out. It shows they've got plans, anyway, of uh, sending astronauts there soon. So let's just have a look at that first.
understand you've got a lot of volunteers already to go. Yeah, us, that's so. right. Yeah, well, they'll give Thank you their you. names afterwards. That's, in fact, we'll, I'll, I'll come to you in a sec, Mitch, and ask about the detail, NASA's details plans. But actually, the first time I heard the idea that people were going a one-way trip, which I didn't believe, was from Paul Davies, actually, years ago. Uh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I suggested that idea in um, 2003, I think. Yeah. Uh, and most people misunderstood. They thought that this was a suicide mission. Uh, a a one-way one mission doesn't mean you get three weeks on the surface of Mars and that's it. The whole idea is to establish a permanent human presence on the red planet. So the, the first astronauts to go would be like the trailblazers, uh, and they would set up base camp. A lot of stuff would be sent on ahead, of course, but they set up base camp, uh, and then they'd be joined later by others, and eventually there would be a colony which, over a period of several centuries, could become self-sustaining, truly independent of, of Earth. So that, that was my vision. And why do we want to do this? Why one-way missions? Well, it enormously reduces the cost, because a lot of the cost of these missions will be in the, you know, the fuel and, and all the stuff to come back again. Uh, if you're just going to go one way and stay there, then it would reduce, it, by my estimate, reduce the cost by about 80%. So it suddenly becomes affordable. It's a very, very expensive thing, a mission to Mars. And it's always 20 or 30 years away. And it's been that way for my, my lifetime. It's all, always a vision in the far future. People talk about it. I can't see there being a Mars mission, sending astronauts there and coming back again this century, I would stick my neck out and say that, okay, without, well, without making it one way. Let's, let's bring Mitch in here, who's with NASA, and uh, NASA has plans to do it before the end of the century. We do. Uh, we currently have plans to send humans uh, at least into orbit uh, around Mars in the 2030s, uh, and then put them on the ground within the decade after that. Um, so, you know, we do, we do, we are planning so on that. 30 years away, that's what I Yeah, that's what sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it takes some time to do this sort of stuff, so. But, but it is a, like, it, like, you know, we, we went to the moon and, you know, it's just a few days there and, you know, you hang around for a while and come back. That's relatively easy, whereas Mars is quite a different proposition, isn't it? I mean, run us through how difficult that is. Yeah, so the moon is close. Uh, it doesn't take as much energy to get there. Uh, you can get there in a few days and then come you know, straight back. Um, Mars is much farther away. Uh, you know, it takes Mars two, years of our, two of our years to go around the sun once for every one of our years. Uh, so every two years, this is why NASA likes to hit those launch windows, because the, what we call the orbital dynamics work out so that you, know, you want to launch so that Earth and Mars are close together so it takes less time uh, and less energy to get there. Um, but it is really, really far away. Uh, and if you're going to send humans, you have to send everything they need to survive with them. Uh, it takes our rovers on the order of seven months, eight months to get there when we hit those launch windows. Uh, but sending people, it'll, because we have to send so much material, so much mass, uh, it's going to take a year and a half, two years just to get there. Uh, same amount of time, essentially, to get back, and then whatever time you want to spend on the surface. So it's two years there, two years back, and you're there for a couple of hours and head home. Is that <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, what, and there's also kind of issues to deal with right in, in space. I mean, there's a bit of radiation out there, for example. Yeah, the radiation environment on Mars is pretty intense, uh, mostly ultraviolet. Also, there's no magnetic field on Mars, so no active magnetic field on Mars to protect from the solar wind. So you get all the charged particles coming from the sun hitting the surface. Uh, so you would have to take material to protect the astronauts when they're, on, when they're on the surface. Again, you have to take all of the supplies they need, all the air they need to breathe, all the fuel, 
all the food, all the water. You have to take it with you. So a solution, Martin, would be a one-way trip. Are you signing up? Uh, I'll probably stay here on Earth and uh, watch somebody else go and have that adventure. Um, I mean, it's one of the aspects of humanity, isn't it, that we are adventurers. Science is adventure, but it's well known through all of our history. People are adventurers. So I can absolutely see that as a reality. I think it's a great challenge for humanity. I think there are a lot of exciting things that come, come out of it. Uh, probably not for myself personally. I've had a number of great explorations and, and challenges in my life. I've been very fortunate. So we'll leave that to the next generation. But the best that we can do is really set the scene for what they can expect while they're there. And uh, there are some really exciting, innovative ideas about colonizing Mars. We now know, because of previous NASA missions, that there are deposits there which you could mine for water. Some of the minerals that are known as deposits have up to 30% water in them. And it's actually not so hard to take that water out of these particular mineral forms and maybe make concentrations that you could actually use. Um, you would have seen on the, on the movie The Martian that there are ways to make other components that you know, maybe we don't have to bring everything up. And I think that's what you know, a lot of the community is really starting to look at. How can we be really smart to keep the costs down and the number of missions to supply Mars with the requirements for supporting life to a minimum. But that's still a huge challenge. Eventually, you could do that on the surface of Mars. And in fact, on Mars 2020, we have a, um, an instrument that's going to demonstrate one of these technologies for extracting resources from Mars. It's uh, an instrument called MOXIE. And it's going to take the carbon dioxide in Mars's atmosphere and uh, strip out carbon monoxide and make oxygen. So we'll be demonstrating that on the Mars 2020 rover. Okay, so there's actually quite a few things you could do to sort of live off the land to, to, yeah. while you're there. Again, it's, it's a, a process, and it takes, you have to send all the equipment there to be able to do it. So it, at least in the short term, you haven't solved the problem. Yeah. What about <laughs> you, Abby? You, I mean, you'd love, rather than sending your equipment there, surely you'd like to be there with it, wouldn't you? Pushing the buttons on Mars. I think Paul thought I would be one of the early recruits for a one-way trip, didn't you? No, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I have uh, not volunteered, but it's amazing how many people do. How, how many people put that oh, on? I, I can't, you know, a, a significant 10%, number. A significant yes. number, yes. yeah. Uh, well, look, it would be fantastic. I mean, what a, what a way to spend the rest of your life. Um, you, you go to a new planet, you're uh, one of the early pioneers, you do fantastic science, your publication record would be sensational, you'd probably get a Nobel Prize, you couldn't go and collect it, you'd have to send somebody uh, for you. But, Students uh, wouldn't be bugging you, I, you'd be... That, but, but, you know, life would go on very much the same. You'd still get all the movies, you'd still get your email, you'd still get the spam. All of that would carry on as before. So, but it takes a lot longer. Well, right. <laughs> we, uh, 20 minutes round trip. That's right, a conversation would be yes, like, you yeah. know, hello, and uh, 20 minutes later it's there, right, and 20 minutes right. later the but other it, hello comes back. But I think this idea of total isolation, which when uh, Werner von Braun was planning, you know, Mars missions back in the 30s, uh, the isolation would have been an extraordinary thing. But now, uh, you, there's no reason to be totally isolated. So you would still be culturally attached to this planet, I think, and working there. They're doing fantastic work. It would be immensely exciting. But your life expectancy would definitely be reduced. Is that in because as Mitch form? says, you know, it's a very harsh environment, high radiation environment. Uh, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of dust to contend with. Uh, the, the cuisine is 
going to be boring. It looked pretty good in the movie there. Yeah. I quite liked all the greens and the vegetables. I couldn't quite make potatoes. out what they were. But... Potatoes, morning, right. noon and night. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, do you think we're underestimating how difficult that will be, though? Like, I mean, I've heard that even landing, a cr- I mean, we can land rovers on Mars because they're quite small, but, you know, landing something that's going to carry humans, even the landing problem hasn't been worked out yet. Is, is that the case? That, that actually is the case. Um, this, again, is why we keep sending robots to Mars to learn more and more. Uh, we instrument the heat shield and the back shell and all this other stuff to learn about pressure conditions, the atmospheric conditions as the rover is coming down. So every time we send a mission to Mars, we collect data to help us understand how to do it better. Um, the, the other difference is when we send rovers, we send them by what's called, dri- tri- I keep screwing that up, direct trajectory. So we launch the rover straight to Mars. So as soon as it gets there, it enters and lands on the surface. Uh, when you would send humans, you would want to put them in orbit first and then have them land from there. But we, we still haven't quite solved that uh, as of yet either, but it's a little bit easier problem once you've gotten into orbit. One of the other really critical things that 2020 will do towards future human exploration too, it, well, 2020 is the first step in a Mars sample return campaign, so that will demonstrate bringing something back, albeit much smaller than a human. I think the capability of bringing something back is, uh, is I think, a key part of being able to... So, so, so the idea is to take a sample from Mars and bring it back with a future mission, bring it back to Earth for the future mission? Yeah, and this will be the first time we've ever gone and selected samples from any other planet. I mean, obviously we've got them from the moon, but, uh, and we have meteorites, but they're not scientifically selected. It's whatever happens to make it here. So this will be the first time ever we will have uh, gone and chosen and returned to Earth samples from another planet. So let me put this scenario to you then. There is life on Mars. You bring the sample back, release it on Earth, takes over and kills everything. <laughs> Plausible? Yeah, the, law- the lawyers have been onto this, and so they would almost certainly intercede in a sample return mission. And so there's talk about, Mitch would know more than I do, um, there, there's somebody called the Planetary Protection Officer. I wanted to apply for that job. And, and they the said job I was currently open, by the way, if I, anyone I, wants to apply. I'm not eligible. I'm not a US citizen. You have to be a US citizen to protect the planet. Anyway. <laughs> You bring this stuff back, and the question is, will it release a killer plague that will wipe us all out? So one plan is you go to the space station and see if they all die. And if they do, you just... (laughs) (laughs) But but, if they're okay, then then you bring it back. But but, but there are lots of legal obstacles to just going to get it. In fact, there's even discussion about on the return trajectory, that you deliberately have a trajectory that will miss Earth unless you're... So the default is you miss, and then you have to intercede to to bring it into Earth orbit. So people are very jumpy about it. I think it's ridiculous, personally, because of this exchange of material that's been going on all through the ages. If uh, there were any nasty bugs on Mars, they would have made it here already, and we're still here. So I don't think... I think the danger is exaggerated, but the, the lawyers certainly on the case. Yeah. And I get, we took the uh, returning of the moon rocks and the astronauts themselves semi-seriously that way, I think, didn't we? I, I heard there was quarantine and that kind of thing, there, although there was, they, was they did pop the hatch when it landed in the yeah. ocean. And the astronauts were looking out the window. Yeah. I think it was all for show, wasn't it? Because well, they had to walk from the, uh, from the, from from the, the helicopter the module into the, into, yes, yeah, of course, I mean, right. <laughs> 
But, but is it, I mean, I guess scientifically though, in terms of evolution, does it even make sense that bugs would have evolved to kill humans on Mars that far away? Well, Carl Sagan said we don't worry about going to Antarctica in case we catch something there that's designed to kill us. So why yeah. worry about Mars? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to the next section, I think. Um, will humans ultimately colonize the galaxy? Is that our destiny? We've been to the moon. We're talking about going to Mars. We've sent probes throughout the solar system. In fact, there's a project, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Breakthrough uh, Starshot, where it's in its early stages, but there's a lot of money behind it, uh, of trying to send a fleet of tiny space probes, you know, we're talking just grams in weight, to the nearest star, to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri, if you prefer. And the idea is this sort of flock of spacecraft will be pushed through space by powerful laser beams. So there'll be sort of a bank of laser beams somewhere on Earth that will hit these sails, they're fitted with sails, and will blast them to a huge speed. And I think the plan is to get them to Alpha Centauri within 20 years, and then it takes four years to get, get the messages back. We've got the, got the promo video here showing how it's possible. So Mitch, you know a few things about uh, NASA and sending spacecraft out there. Is this feasible, do you think, one day? Uh, I, yeah, probably. Um, the... <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like to hear from NASA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's an undemonstrated technology. We're always worried about those kinds of things. But um, in principle, of course, it could work. Um, the farthest spacecraft we've actually sent is the Voyager spacecraft, which has now left the solar system. It was launched in 1977. It's taken 40 years for it to leave the solar system. Um, but that was with conventional rockets. It wasn't pushed by lasers. Uh, but the key there is that we're actually still talking to Voyager. Uh, so from beyond the solar system, we're actually still getting information. So clearly, you know, sending the, the radiation that far is, is not a problem. Yeah, 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 I mean, that's quite amazing, really, that Voyager's still talking to us yeah. after all these years. Um, Paul, can you see us getting to Alpha Centauri 
soon? Well, I'm, I'm sort of a <laughs> bit involved with this uh, Starshot mission. Now, it's not NASA. This is Yuri Milner. Yeah. Uh, who has, uh, yeah, so it's pri private funding. Private funding. And it overlaps his other big project, uh, Breakthrough uh, Listen, which is uh, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So it's a sort of two-pronged assault. Um, and, uh, well, what can I say about the Starshot? Ambitious. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, these lasers, so the first thing is that uh, maybe people don't realize that a, a laser beam, very powerful laser beam, uh, can exert a pressure. Light actually uh, exerts a pressure. Not much of one, so you need enormous amounts of energy. And these little microchips are tethered to like little sails that would uh, be pushed, as you saw in the animation, by this light pressure uh, and accelerated over Oh, a very short period of time, enormous acceleration, so over a minute or something, to 20% of the speed of light. So they take about 20 years uh, to get to Alpha Centauri. They wouldn't slow down. We wouldn't have any of these sort of aero-breaking. They'd just go whizzing through. Um, and you have to aim these lasers from the ground to what is technically called na nano uh, arc-second resolution, which means incredibly, you know, it's a little, it's a receding object, tiny, tiny object. And you, You've got to be spot on, literally spot on, um, and, and the through lasers, a something atmosphere. I mean, I the lasers are on Earth, right? They're yes, not in space. Yes, they, they might be in the Atacama Desert, for example. Uh, exactly right. And then you need huge energy. So you need some nuclear reactor or something, and then you store the energy, and then boom, there'd be this great pulse. And what you saw at the end of that animation, with the, the whole landscape sort of glowing red, that's the radiation coming back from these little objects as they zoom through the planetary system at their destination, they would send laser, uh, laser signals back that would be picked up by the same dishes that propelled them in the first place. That's, that's the plan, anyway. Abby, would you uh, like to sort of uh, have, uh, because a few months ago, I think it was, they discovered a, a planet that's in this sort of habitable zone, which is you know, just the right distance for its sun for, in theory, uh, liquid water to be on the surface. They discovered a planet around Proxima Centauri, yeah, which is part of the Alpha Centauri system. So would you be keen to get some data well, back from Proxima Centauri? You stopped the video just at the bit where I thought it was going to get interesting. So they sent the message back to Earth saying, we got here, but there was no, this is what we've found. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I think uh, the, the question there is, are we going to, there needs to be a whole new field of, of of, of human endeavour, which is a planetary engineering, I think, and uh, t whether it's be for terraforming Mars or, or dealing with the, uh, the not quite right aspects of whatever that planet was, and uh, turning it into something that we can actually colonise long term. So, so on that topic of terraforming Mars, which is which is the idea that we, you know, make Mars a bit more Earth-like, a bit more suited to humans, because I I was really impressed with those first. Uh, uh, photos of Mars sent back by the Voyager spacecraft. I mean, they looked like the Red Desert in Australia somewhere. It looked very livable, you know, but you couldn't see the deadly radiation and the thin atmosphere and no oxygen in the atmosphere. So if we terraform Mars, in principle, we could make it more Earth-like. How would you do that? Uh, if you tell me, and we'll both know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think, I mean, obviously we're already, um, whether we know it, like it, or admit it or not, uh, we are becoming planetary engineers with our own planet. We are changing the nature of this planet. Uh, so it's not terraforming, it's neoforming or something change, just changing the, uh, the climate on this, on this planet. Uh, so that once we turn that into something that we can control and, and uh, use constructively, then we can think about terraforming another planet.
If we, we can warm up Earth, we can warm up Mars. Yes, yeah. so has NASA Mars got plans CO2? to cause a massive greenhouse effect no. on Mars? That's we that, do not yeah, currently yeah. have plans to do that, no. no. But, but in the past, <laughs> Mars has had thicker, a thicker atmosphere and has had more CO2, and it does go through climatic uh, excursions, natural ones. Uh, so it could be warmer than it is now. How, how would you do it? What, simply, what would you do to warm Mars Nuke up? Nuke the polar caps. <laughs> Seems simple enough. <laughs> yeah. An idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and, I mean, we so the polar caps, you could sort of melt them in some way and release carbon dioxide. Yes, yeah, so CO2. And that after. would cause yeah. a greenhouse effect yeah. and yeah. warm things up. Yes, and then it all spirals out of control. Yeah. <laughs> you, right. a... you would sublimate them at this point because sublimate directly from yes. the yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Right. And what? And then could we grow plants on Mars and produce oxygen? I mean, that's, oxygen on the Earth came from the plants, right? Yeah, it turns out that most of the oxygen actually came from these microbial communities that Mitch was talking about earlier very, very long ago. It took billions of years for the oxygen to actually increase to a level enough that it became part of the atmosphere, a new atmosphere that is actually a biosignature. Large volumes of oxygen in the atmosphere is only produced by biology. And that's one of the really exciting developments in the field of astrobiology is with the discipline of astronomy and astrophysics is looking for these exoplanets and not only finding them, but analyzing their spectral signature to see what the composition of their atmosphere is. And there have been some sort of, you know, hints of exciting compositions and they can see it's, it's pushing absolutely the envelope of our technology but the extraordinary thing is that with the development of new telescopes that are being launched into space, they're now finding planets everywhere. And so this gets back to what Paul said about a universe teeming with life, you know. We had our solar system was our only, you know, bit of knowledge that we knew. And there are nine planets or eight, depending on whether you count Pluto or not. And um, Let's not stop that. <laughs> and not start that debate. But... The amazing thing is that the more we look, the more planets we found. And now we're finding increasingly there are more and more Earth-like planets. And some of those are in the habitable zone. And that's just within the field of view that we can easily see. So just imagine, you know, these infinite vast depths of space, how many planets there must be. And it does become a numbers game. And so we don't know the origin of life, and that is still one of the big mysteries that faces science and is still a beautiful thing in the fact that it is a mystery because life is wondrous. But if you think about it in terms of complexity and reactions, it's a numbers game. You have to have billions or trillions of reactions to get these complex self-replicating molecules. And then if we know that we've got, you know, billions of stars with billions of planets and, you know, the numbers just keep going up and up and up. So Paul's written about this and talked about it, and the reality is we still don't know because we've got an example of one. We haven't recreated a genesis of Earth on Earth. And um, it's interesting because people have asked me, you know, about this idea of, of the origin of life in deep sea vents or on hot springs, and they say, well, why isn't life forming now? Like, why can't it regenerate on Earth? But the problem is that as soon as you get an organic molecule, existing life goes and uses it, right? So you can't start de novo again on Earth because life is everywhere. I okay, just... well, that's a lovely, a lovely segue into intelligent life. Is there, there's, um, as well as this um, 
big program to try to send that fleet of tiny craft to Alpha Centauri. There's another one that Paul mentioned, Breakthrough Listen, which is $100 million being spent over 10 years to get some, buy some serious telescope time and listen to the galaxy, the star systems, to see if there are any messages out there. One of Paul's favourite topics. Are we going to know if ET is out there by the end of 10 years? Uh, <clears throat> The problem is you can't prove a negative. You can listen for a million years, not hear anything, and it doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, but uh, it's, therefore, it's impossible. If we, if we can't estimate the odds of non-life turning into life, we can't, certainly can't estimate the odds of how many intelligent civilizations out there. There may be none, uh, but it seems to me I've always been a, support, a skeptic, but a supporter of the idea that we should make the effort to listen. So I think SETI is just a wonderful thing to do, even if it is a hopeless quest. Because uh, <laughs> it, it leads to conversations like this, and it gets young people interested in science, and I, you know, I think it's all very wonderful. I've always been a SETI well-wisher, but I have to admit, the, the, the fundamental problem with the basic strategy, which is you get a radio telescope, you point it at some likely star, you listen for half an hour, don't hear anything, point it at another, another, another. Um, you have to assume that ET is deliberately beaming messages our way, because uh, even with the most powerful telescopes we have, we couldn't pick up domestic radio traffic on another planet. Uh, so they'd have to make the effort of sending powerful pulses towards us. Or maybe they are. But bear in mind this. Supposing the nearest civilization is, say, a thousand light years away, and that's quite close by SETI standards. That's optimistic. A thousand light years away. Uh, so they see us as Earth was a thousand years ago. Nothing can go faster than light. So when they look back, however powerful their instruments, they would see Earth as it was a thousand years ago. And there'd be some bright people there, not people, but whatever, uh, organisms, <laughs> little green persons, yeah. um, uh, who would deduce. I like to think there would be SETI enthusiasts on this hypothetical civilization. They'd say, there's that really interesting planet over there, and we know there's intelligent life because we can see the Great Wall of China and the pyramids and agriculture and so on. And we think any millennium soon, they will have radio technology. Can we beam them messages? And I know what their funding body would say. They'd say, well, this is really wonderful discovery. Come back in a few millennia when you know they're on the air. <laughs> so when they get our first radio signals, then they might start beaming towards us. But there's no reason for them to do it until they know that we have radio technology. And they don't know that yet. Well, do you were uh, uh, a SETI fan, Abigail? Oh, I think it's a wonderful idea. But as you say, it's a... It's a long shot. Yeah, it's a very much a long shot. But um, it always strikes me how... I mean, so that there's the hurdle you have to cross to get life in the first place, and then the hurdle you have to cross to get from microbial life to complex life. But then that, that extra leap from complex life to sentient life is, to me, it must be, it's huge. It's, it's got to be at least as big and unlikely as the origin of life itself. But, but Abby, at least in going from microbes to intelligent beings, we know the process that did it. It's called Darwinian evolution. We still can't work out the numbers, but at least we know the process. We don't know the process that turned non-life into life. So that's the really big unknown. That's where the error bars are biggest. And then there's the one that hasn't been demonstrated yet, which is sentient life getting from one planet to another. One solar system, one galaxy to another. What's, what's physically spreading as opposed to sending messages. So we know microbes can do it, but... Microbes can do it, yeah. In a limited way, I think. I don't think they can go very far. Yeah, Mitch. And it did take... Um 
photosynthesis to actually create all of the oxygen in the atmosphere. So if all of the life on the particular planet that you're talking about is chemical-based in hot springs or deep sea vents or whatever, um, then would you have gotten to multicellular life? Because we think that it was the advent of oxygen that actually allowed multicellular organisms to start in the first place. Okay, and Martin, you, you mentioned that we're, we're getting telescopes that are able to look at atmospheres of exoplanets and see oxygen. These new powerful telescopes, is a one you know, being launched, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, I think the Giant Magellan Telescope, you know, really big telescopes that will be able to work out what's in the atmospheres of these exoplanets. What if I find CFCs and artificial pollutants in the atmospheres? What does that tell us? It tells us we would need to fund a lot more scientific research so that we could uh, explore more. No, I, and these are very difficult questions, aren't they? Um, and we're talking about things that we're really pushing the very forefront of our current knowledge. And one thing I love about the video that you showed here and about some, some of the things we talk about is it really demonstrates our natural inquisitiveness and our you know, drive to find out more and be better and do more. And I think you know that it was exemplified by the question earlier on about who would go to Mars. Well, why would you go to Mars? Because we can, right? For the exploration, for the excitement, for that drive of being human and expanding our knowledge and going forth. So that part of it, and, and for me, I think, that aspect of astrobiology and the involvement in space programs and learning more about our surroundings is, is really the exciting part, and developing technologies that, in the end, will benefit us here on the Earth. I'd just like to add one last comment to what was brought up about this idea of trying to find other civilizations, just to put it in context for you, because we don't think about it very much. We get so wrapped up in our own world, and we think about our lives and how complicated and how long they are, and, you know, yeah, as, radio, as Paul said, our radio technology has only been for, what, 100 years, plus or minus, well, yeah. right? The universe is 13.7 billion years. Imagine finding that spark of intelligent life from somewhere else over those kinds of timescales and distances. So, again, it's a numbers game, but I hope that gives you a bit of a feeling of the vastness of this thing that we live in and the uh, complexity of our, of our uh, investigations. Okay, well, we've, uh, we've pretty much come to the end here. We're gonna have one, one more little chat, but if you've got questions, your time is now. Uh, we've got four microphones uh, in the corners of the room. I can't really see out there, but they're labeled one, two, three, four. If you've got a question, wander off to those microphones now and stand behind them. While you're doing that, um, we'll have one last little chat, I think. How, if we discovered a message with the SETI search that was no doubt about it, we could interpret it and it was a sign of intelligence. How would that change us? Very quickly, all four of you. Well, first of all, I should say that CFCs would not be a sign of extraterrestrial intelligence, <laughs> but a sign of extraterrestrial <laughs> stupidity. <Yeah. laughs> but but I, think, I think it would, it would change it. Uh, I, I like to think it would change society as much as Cop Copernicus and uh, Darwin and Einstein put together. Obviously, it would be huge, but I think it would take a long time to settle, to sink in and, um, well, first of all, to accept and then to affect the way we, we look at ourselves, because everything we do discover about uh, the context in which we live, um, you can't understand the significance of anything unless you understand its context, and that includes ourselves and our planet. 
You think about just a century ago, we thought of Mars as having canals built by civilizations and that uh, the universe was this small place and we're just going to flip from place to place and meet aliens and so forth. And only 100 years later, we have a completely different view upon it, of it. And that affects the way we uh, react to things like um, climate change and what we're uh, doing to our own planet and our own view of ourselves and our biosphere. And, and uh, so understanding whether or not there is life out there that is also sentient would, would hugely shape that, but it would take time to, to sink in. Okay, very quickly, because I can see them lining up. Uh, uh, Mitch? It, it would be extraordinary. Again, I think finding a sign of an intelligent life somewhere else would be an even bigger deal than finding life beyond Earth um, and would really make us sort of think about our place. Martin, one final quick comment. I think nobody would believe it. I think everybody would say it's just an alternative fact and they'd uh, just go home. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. Now, let me look into the distance here. Ah, yes, I think it's that microphone number one. Let's go with that first up. If you could say who your question is directed to as well would be good. Uh, hi, my question is directed to Mitch. My name's Lisa. Uh, we've chatted before. My question is about public outreach and securing research funding. It's kind of hard for the public to get excited about rocks sometimes. <laughs> I disagree. So have we thought about, in <laughs> have we thought about including payloads such as plants on Martian rovers, such as the Mars plant experiment suggested by Chris McKay or Elon Musk? Uh, so th the way the process works is that people submit proposals to NASA. Uh, they get peer-reviewed, so we send them out to the scientific community for all of the scientific community to weigh in on the value of that particular investigation. Uh, that was proposed for the Mars 2020 mission and was not chosen, uh, largely as a result of the peer review process. Thank you. <laughs> not Mitch's fault at all. Not my fault, exactly, <laughs> thank you. Okay, let's, uh, let's go with microphone number two. Hi there, guys, my name is Sayed, and I have two questions for you. To the panel, I'll ask them both and feel free to answer either or both. Um, my first question is, given that we're not that we've limited ourselves to not explore the polar caps on the basis that we might actually introduce our own life forms to there and thus actually endanger any existing potential life forms there. At what point in time would we be allowing ourselves to explore the polar caps or those regions where we suspect life might exist? My second question is for scientifically minded people who actually want to go into space in Australia, we don't currently have any industry. What is your recommendation to people who live in Australia who actually want to go into, say, become a rocket engineer like myself? All right, well, uh, Mitch, you'd like to answer yeah, that? Yeah, I, I can take the first one, yeah. um, if you can remind me what it was. <laughs> <laughs> At one point in time, will we be oh, able the polar to... Caps, the right. polar caps. Okay, so it, it turns out that... The, so the answer is we've actually explored pretty close to the polar caps. We've sent um, a lander in 2007 called Phoenix. It landed at about 60 degrees north. So we're getting pretty close there. Um, part of it is uh, orbital dynamics and trying to get to the poles, which is difficult unless you launch from a particular uh, launch angle in a particular location on Earth to get into polar orbit or to go directly to the poles. Uh, the other point is that according to the planetary protection rules, we are allowed to explore uh, what we consider to be special regions like the polar caps as long as we sterilize the spacecraft. So it is possible to do. But they don't get sterilized, do they? Uh, they, they sterilized Viking completely. Yes, but, uh, but after we have, that, Yeah, it's gotten more complicated slipped. because a lot of instruments don't really like the heating for uh, 
72 hours at 500 degrees Celsius. But like, like Abby's. Yeah. Abby didn't like that idea. So. Um, look, just and a quick answer to your second question. Well, you want to yeah. say? Yeah, so it's actually a very uh, uh, timely question that you asked, your second one, because at the moment, there's a call out from the federal government for a response to the idea of developing a space agency in Australia. Um, and so we're having feedback on that right at the moment. Um, but in addition to that, there are avenues for getting involved in space exploration and space engineering. UNSW has two groups that focus on space engineering and have undergraduate and master's degrees. The Australian Centre for Astrobiology is involved in the science behind looking for life elsewhere in the solar system. And there are other avenues, including you know, development of GIS technologies, satellite technologies. UNSW just launched two CubeSats from the International Space Station just a month and a half ago. So you're right, there's no focused industry on space in Australia at the moment, but there is activity in space in Australia. So go for it. Paul, you have So Ironica, when I was a, a student of the same age as the young man at the back, uh, in London, if you wanted to do rockets, you went to Australia. Yeah, that's right. We, we kind of had a space program years ago. Big one. Um, I think you're getting the pattern here. Let's go with microphone number three. Hi, my name's Alex. Does NASA have any plans of sending off artificial intelligent robots to Mars to set, it up, to set up Mars before humans? So, okay, Mitch, you've been... Yeah, so, uh, well, the rovers actually are pretty smart. Uh, we can't operate them in real time, so they are pre-programmed with a lot of what you could call artificial intelligence. It's not like, you know, a robot walking around that you see in the movies and stuff. Uh, but the, the rovers do have software built into them that actually allow them to look at the terrain and decide it's okay to go over that way and not go over that way. So they do have some level of artificial intelligence built into them already. Uh, in terms of pre-sending materials, um, we're not quite there yet. Uh, number four. Hello. Uh, so my name is Yanis, and uh, again, a question for Mitch. So a few years ago, NASA didn't really plan to go to Mars. So do you think the enthusiasm about going to Mars and uh, colonizing the planet comes from Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX? So, yeah, what do you think? So partly. Um, personally, I think what Mr. Musk is doing is great. Um, he's pushing us, and uh, you know, we're actually providing him funding to do a lot of work for us as well. Um, I think, I think there just has been a lot more renewed interest lately in Mars in general, and that's one of the reasons that we're uh, more actively exploring it. Part of the other answer to your question is that we take our direction from the U.S. government. I'm a federal government employee for the United States, and you know, when we get instructions about what to do, then that's what we do. And the previous administration had started us on this path to go to Mars, so that's where we are. Number one again. Oh, firstly, uh, Paul, I'd just like to say that your 2003 article actually led me to signing up for a one-way mission to Mars, so thank you very much for that. Uh, my question is for the entire panel. Uh, we've heard about Australia's space industry, we've heard about uh, working, as US federal, uh, working for the US federal government. Do you see nationalism and our focus on where we were born and which country we would call home as a barrier to the future colonisation of Mars? Ah. I'd be, happy, I'd be happy to start with that one. Um, NASA works with every single space agency on the planet. 
every single country that has a space agency, the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, the Indian Space Agency, the United Arab Emirates just started a space agency and they're planning to launch an orbiter to Mars in 2020. Uh, we work with all of them. So I, personally, I do not see that as a barrier at all. Yeah, I think if there ever is a permanent human presence on Mars, all of the Earth affiliations have got to be left behind because you're starting a new colony and, and it's, you're going to be Martians. And, uh, that, that Surely we be, can all get on. on yeah, I, I, I would think so. <laughs> okay, great, thank you. Uh, number two. Hi. Uh, a philosophical question, I guess. Do you think we have a moral obligation to colonise elsewhere if only to ensure our ongoing existence? Perhaps a risk management address, uh, issue? <coughs> you think we need one at the moment, do you? I, I reckon so. And uh, also, is the 2020 rover a Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> Who is funding NASA these days? Uh, I'll, I'll take the second question. Yeah. Uh, it, it, no. it is not a Tesla. It is not being built by Elon Musk. Um, it, it is an all-electric vehicle, however, but it's uh, nuclear-powered. I mean, is, is the, who wants to take that other question? Is, is it just sort of human vanity to think that we should be spreading out in space because we're so wonderful? And, or maybe we shouldn't be allowed to spread out in space? I, I think you have to distinguish about whether uh, there's some, somebody or something there already, uh, if there is. So, if, for example, if there's life on Mars, it's not, as I was suggesting earlier, just spread there from here or vice versa, then I think we have some sort of moral obligation to protect what is there maybe encourage it a bit. But if it is totally sterile, or it's just got the same life as on Earth, then I think it's good that we should colonize Mars, if only because there could be some mega catastrophe here on Earth. Uh, it might be a pandemic, it might be an asteroid impact, it might be nuclear war, all sorts of reasons why maybe not the whole species would disappear, but civilization as we know it would disappear and the flame of human culture would be kept alive elsewhere. But it would take a long time for that Mars colony to be self-sustaining. It's yeah. no good if they depend still on supply from Earth. But after a thousand years, I think they would be, and I think that's a good insurance policy. It's like a lifeboat for humanity. I think it's a good thing to do. Okay, microphone number three, I think, if I've got the sequence right. And at school, we're doing a project where we have to build a lottery machine and rig it to send the preferred candidates to Mars. If and when people go to Mars, how would the candidates be selected equally and fairly for the mission? Okay. Very good question. Yeah. She'd she, she be a good start because low body weight is good. So. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to sign up? It costs less to send little people. Yeah. <laughs> and Tell your mum and dad now. <laughs> and people are good at uh, playing computer video games for 17 hours at a row, you know. They've got practice to stay in, in confined a, spaces. I think put them in front of a movie telling them, telling them the, the, the reality of what it's going to be like and the last person left in the room, well, they get to go. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what is the selection process for astronauts anyway? Uh, well, so actually, funny you mention that because we just had a call for astronaut candidates. Uh, we got over 18,000 applications in the last round, and I think you got they, mine, did you? Uh, <laughs> and I think they only selected uh, 
six or eight or something. Um, so it, it's a very rigorous process. It's physical fitness, mental fitness, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it, it, it's a very, very uh, tough thing, especially if you're going to go all the way to Mars. There are a lot of psychological tests that they have to undergo because they don't want people going crazy on the way there, being in a confined space. Um, so I don't know that the selection process for the actual first candidates to go to Mars will necessarily be fair in that sense, that they'll just flip a coin and decide. Um, but, you know, of all the qualified applicants, I don't actually know what the process will be for selecting who's going to go. But, but this current intake they've just had, presumably there's a chance that some of those might be on yeah. Mars mission. Yeah, and, and, and they sent in their applications with full knowledge that their mission might be going to Mars. Okay, uh, number four. Uh, hi. <coughs> Sorry. Hi, my name's Will, and I just want to address this question to the whole panel. The entire talk you've been... I guess, talking about life on Mars in the context of it being similar to life on Earth. Is there, okay, firstly, do you know if life has developed in a way that is inherently different to the life that we have on Earth? And if life like that does exist and we don't know about it, how would we go about detecting it, <laughs> I suppose? That's a good question, very good question. I'm sure Paul Davis is very uh, Well, I do. I, I'm doing too much talking, yeah. but uh, if I can have a quick go at it, yeah. Because, you see, we don't even have to go to Mars to think about answering that, because supposing there's more than one form of life on Earth, uh, and this is an idea that we've been exploring at the Beyond Center at Arizona State University for some years. Uh, we call it the shadow biosphere. Supposing that life didn't just start once on Earth or Mars or wherever, but it started many, many times, and that there's descendants of another genesis all around us today, just be microbes. Uh, how, how do we know? Has anybody actually looked? It turns out no one's looked for microbial life on Earth, which is life, but not as we know it. Uh, and the difficulty is that uh, microbiologists who are very good at looking for new forms of life always look for life as we know it. And if you go looking for A, you're going to find more A, you won't find B. And so if you, you want to try to find a form of life which is uh, different from ours, uh, you have to uh, make educated guesses to how it might differ and then go, go look for that. Or you find some way of filtering out all known life, so uh, everything that uh, the, all life of this form we know would not live, and yet if something remains alive, uh, that might be an alternative form of life. So these are the sorts of things we have thought about. Um, but there's no general definition of life. Uh, uh, and so if, you, if we, you think about the context of going to Titan or Enceladus or any of these exotic environments looking for exotic forms of life, then there's a really fundamental problem about what do you actually look for. And as yet, there is no clear answer. Did you, anyone else want to contribute? No. Yeah, I'll just add. Uh, just a, a quick thought along those uh, lines as well. It's, it's very easy to think that, oh, maybe there's life based on sulfur or some other elements. But, you know, it turns out that water and carbon are two of the most common components in the entire solar system, the whole galaxy. They're just everywhere. And they turn out to make the most efficient bonds, the most complex, simple molecules and stuff. And so, yeah, you could argue that life may be based on other elements, but it's chemically harder to do. And so, although it's true that we only have an example of one, if you look at the elements that make up our larger environment, 
they're the ones that you'd probably use. And they're common. You know, the watery moons of Jupiter and Saturn, Enceladus and Europa, have oodles of water. They've got an icy crust. And carbon, we know, is in the comets and all over the place. We've got organic molecules and meteorites. So those elements are around. It's not like they're exotic and unique to Earth. They're everywhere. So, but, but you can still have many, many different types of life, even with those elements. Yeah, but it's all based on the same right. simple you, sort of but, chem chemistry. But microbiologists couldn't even detect life on Earth if it had a different genetic code. Even if it's got nucleic acids and proteins and all the rest of it, just a different code, they wouldn't find it. They might see it, but they wouldn't recognize it for what it is. They'd throw it away. Yeah, I was going to say, the interesting thing is once you go back into the very, very deep time in the early fossil record, some of that um, becomes, it gets filtered out. Some of the biosignatures uh, at that, when you pass it through that, that filter of, of fossilization, some of those biosignatures I think are largely independent of whether they're life as we know it, life as we don't know it. Uh, and, uh, you mean that, that there are some chemical signatures which should be true of all forms of carbon-based not, based not life? Not chemical signatures, but morphological oh, signatures. morphological mm. signatures, what they do rather than what they are. Mm. I have a feeling we could debate this for hours and hours, so let's, let's move on to... Uh, people, the, and people do, and, and they get nowhere. For careers. Paul, my question is for you. It's about uh, panspermia again. Um, we were talking earlier about if, if we're looking for life on Mars, then clearly we're assuming there was that period when life could have been sustained, whether it was there or not. And I think you said it was about two and a half to three billion years ago and only lasted 500 million to a billion years. But Earth life started three and a half billion years ago. So you said uh, if life exists on one, it'll be on both because of panspermia. So I guess my question is why don't we see microbial fossilized records of Earth life that traveled to Mars, notwithstanding the higher escape velocity, but still, over a billion years, wouldn't you expect it to arrive on Mars and thrive if Mars could have had life? Yeah. So let me uh, just quickly uh, say, I don't think we've used the word panspermia, I'm not sure, but uh, panspermia is the idea that life is sort of traveling through space on rocks. Right. Maybe even from other star systems, right? right? But let's focus on Mars right. and Earth. So when Mars and Earth were, were twins, Three and a half billion years ago was the time they were, had similar environments. Then it would have been very congenial for life traveling from Earth to Mars and arriving there and thinking, well, this is just like home, and making a living. But then about 3.5 billion years ago, Mars went off the boil. I mean, it, uh, uh, it's, the atmosphere thinned, and it became very cold and turned into a freeze-dry desert. And those microbes may have retreated underground, and they may still be there. Uh, but they're unlikely to be flourishing on the surface. So I think um, it might have been a great place for life to get going, but subsequently a bad place for it to hang in there. Okay, thank you. Uh, number two. Uh, hi, I'm Gigi. Um, we recently did an assignment on mining and colonizing the moon. Um, two questions. I'm just wondering, um, would, we, would it be better if we went to the moon to mine energy for, to optimize the energy to go to, the, to, go to Mars? Or should we um, just get the energy from the moon, like, sorry, colonize the moon and then go to Mars? Which one would be like better? So is, is the question whether we just use the moon as a stepping stone to get to Mars? And, you know, yeah. Really, rather than focusing on the moon. Mitch? 
well, <laughs> the, the great thing about the moon is that there are resources there and the gravity is a lot less, so it's easier to get off the surface. Um, there are things on the moon that we uh, could take advantage of, certainly. Um, the one thing that it doesn't have a whole lot of is water. Um, so that is kind of a problem, which is one of the other reasons that Mars would probably be better to colonize in the long run, because you have a source of water that you could extract from the environment. Uh, but the moon, uh, and NASA has actually talked about things like that, establishing a base on the, on the moon to be able to use that as a stepping stone for, for going elsewhere. But in terms of fuel, it's not very promising. I mean, uh, drill, baby, drill on the moon isn't going to work for you. But it does have one thing that uh, the astronaut uh, Jack Schmidt has identified. Uh, it was helium-3, yeah. uh, which you could use in a nuclear fusion reactor. But um, I think it's still be very, very tough to harvest the helium-3 from and, there. And, and we haven't made fusion work yet. No, no, so. no. That's uh, 30 years away. <laughs> 30 years away. <laughs> I think that's 50 years away. <laughs> <laughs> Not so easy. OK, thank you very much. Uh, uh, microphone number three, please. Hi, um, my name is Lyndon, and I have a question, well, two questions about um, Breakthrough Starshot. Um, the first question is about um, how do um, the nano starcraft move with the lasers, since um, the lasers would be probably massless, and all external forces equals mass times acceleration, and without mass, you can't really move. And the second question was, um, since space is practically frictionless, how, um, why would we need these StarCraft Nano? Why can't we have them a bigger size, let's say? I think we have to go with one question or the other, probably, because we're running out of time. You can easily knock off both. <laughs> yep. The physics don't, question, straight yes, up. Don't, don't confuse the rest mass with the mass. So photons certainly have a mass. Uh, they don't have any rest mass. Uh, so that's just a quick answer. You'd have to look that up. Google that. And the reason they're so small is because Yuri Milner can only afford $100 million. Uh, the bigger your payload, uh, the bigger the punch to get it moving, and the more expensive that's going to be. OK, let's move, let's move quickly on to where am I? Number four. Hello. I would like to ask a question about how complex is the suit to get to Mars? Is the space suit, how complex is the space Yeah. Okay. Is it a special space suit you'd have on Mars? It'd be the same one as you have on the moon? Well, one Abby? Of, one of, hmm. Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, in, in general, it's very similar to the ones they used on the moon, but we've Obviously, we've developed a lot of new technologies lately with new kinds of materials. Uh, again, the biggest problem when you're at Mars will be the radiation. And the astronauts that went to the moon didn't really have to worry about that quite as much because they still had some protection from Earth's magnetic field even out at the moon. Um, but when you go to Mars, you don't have that protection at all. And so they have to um, build more protection into the spacesuit. But in general, the idea is that you want something that will protect them, uh, that will you know, give them uh, warmth so that they won't die and uh, provide oxygen and uh, water for them to drink. So in, in general, they're very similar, but with some modifications, mostly based on the new kinds of materials that we have these days. And presumably there'll be even newer materials, perhaps, in 30 sure. years' time. Yeah. Still working on things yeah. like that, yeah. Um, look, I, we're almost out of time, and we've been around evenly. Maybe one last quick question from number one. 
Okay, so I have two questions. Everyone's quite long with this. Ask, ask your favourite question. Okay. <laughs> um, so my first question is... <laughs> well, my one question is... Um, since there is um, so many planets out there, therefore being so many exoplanets, exoplanets, however you pronounce it, um, what would be the chance that there is actually intelligent life, not just life, but intelligent life that can use radio waves and stuff to communicate with us. What's the chance of that? Okay. We, I mean, we don't, ultimately, we don't know what the chance is, but what are, you, what are your feelings? What are you, if you had to guess, each one of them. My scientists number, don't have number feelings. Number between one and a hundred percent. Well, I, I, I hate to be a killjoy. I think it's a very, very low probability, actually. But I love it. You know, I hope, I hope I'm wrong. But, but I... I'm skeptical. I'll uh, hold my my judgment till I see the evidence. <laughs> Mitch, uh, I'm I'm also with Paul on this one. I think it's pretty low. I think for intelligent, um, you know, civilized, complex life, yeah, almost vanishingly small. <laughs> but life, microbial life, I think there's a higher probability, and that's really what we're engaged in looking for on Mars and really elsewhere. So, thumbs up, be positive. We think there's a chance there for sure. Thank you. All right, well, that's, uh, that's a lovely note to finish up. Thank you. Thank you very much.